Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Shikermain, and I'm joined here with our co-host. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Pham. He's currently the Associate Director at the Milken Institute's Center for Strategic Philanthropy. The Milken Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan economic think tank whose scholars publish research papers and conduct conferences on global and regional economies, human capital, demographics, and capital markets. The mission of the Milken Institute is to, quote, improve the lives and economic conditions of diverse populations in the United States and around the world by helping businesses and public policy leaders identify and implement innovative ideas for creating broad-based prosperity. More specifically, the Institute's Center for Strategic Philanthropy, which is where Daniel serves as Associate Director, advises philanthropists and foundations that seek to develop and implement transformational giving strategies in five key areas. One, catalyzing philanthropic action. Two, advancing medical solutions. Three, protecting environmental assets. Four, creating 21st century education models. And five, building healthier communities. Notably, Daniel is also an alumni. Um, He graduated with his PhD from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in the neuroscience program. Daniel, thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. So could you briefly introduce us to the Milken Institute Center for Strategic Philanthropy and specifically what you work on there? Yeah, of course. So um, at the uh, Center for Strategic Philanthropy, we work with uh, philanthropists and foundations who, you know, maybe historically have um, given to medical opportunities, but have maybe not seen their investments come to fruition. So, you know, maybe they've donated to their alma mater. So they've had, you know, names on buildings, um, but they haven't really seen the fruits of that labor. So they come to us uh, to seek to better uh, deploy their investments so that they can actually see that their investments are impacting the field in a more effective way. So we usually, in in that manner, develop a, uh, a landscaping uh, outline. So we we look at the field that which they're interested in. So I personally work um, on bipolar disorder. So the foundation I'm w- working here is interested in making a difference there, and it's sorely needed. So um, in the beginning, we look and identify the gaps and opportunities in the field to see where philanthropy could make the biggest difference. Because sometimes, as I'm sure you know, um, philanthropic investments don't necessarily have the impact and sometimes even can be detrimental to the field. So we work with scientists um, to identify this, um, these different gaps and then bring in the funders and kind of align where their interests are um, to make the difference. So we always need to bring in the community of both the, the, the funders, the um, scientists, the clinicians, and also the, those with lived experience, because those are the really important key stakeholders um, that are required. And then we build out grant programs or initiatives that um, can 
distribute the funds in an effective way. So it, it, it's a really cool way to be able to design uh, and think about, um, you know, if I were the NIH, essentially the National Institutes of Health, how would I um, dole out the money to make the, the biggest impact in health? Interesting. So it's, so it's not just um, external philanthropic organizations you're interfacing with, it's actually you know, institutions that are also looking to deploy their capital meaningfully. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, in order to make the biggest impact, we need to uh, interact with everybody in that field. So that includes the federal government, um, the FDA, so that includes the FDA, the NIH, also includes biotech, um, basic scientists, um, advocates, uh, those with lived experience. So without all of these pieces, you know, the, the, the investment won't work as well. So we seek to not waste people's money uh, and really identify the opportunities that um, are sorely needed that could really move a field, but also can really have an impact in the timeframe that philanthropists also want. What is the timeline that philanthropists typically ask for? And does that, I would imagine that doesn't always line up with what those who have lived experiences are, you know, thinking might be possible and versus what the scientists know their timelines are like. How do you reconcile those differences? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as we know, in, in science, things take a lot of time. Um, and, you know, even as we're sitting in this pandemic, the way um, with, with COVID-19, which, you know, a lot of our funds are, are going towards, science self-corrects, right? And then you see starts and then false starts and then kind of like the the process iterates, which is the intention of, of, of science. So um, we we make sure that the foundations and philanthropists understand this, and usually they do. Um, so it's really, you know, what, what we also say is that when it comes to medical philanthropy, um, the medical philanthropy comes to you, like you don't go searching for it, meaning that if I were a philanthropist and I was interested in bipolar disorder usually it means that you know I have it or someone in my family may have it as well so there's a deep connection um, to wanting to make a difference in the field um, as fast as possible with the understanding that science the science needs to be rigorous so um, usually when we uh, have these initial conversations there is an understanding that you know it takes a year or two to do a really thorough landscaping of the field to talk to all the people we want to. For the bipolar work, I talked to about 80, 85 people. Um, and then we built out um, our recommendations and that takes several months. And then we put together advisory boards that take several months. Um, and then we um, dole out the funding, which also, of course, as you know, takes um, several years to get results. Um, that then becomes peer peer reviewed and all that. So, you know, the, the process does take a while and there is an understanding that and we make sure that we communicate this well. And, you know, again, a lot of my job is um, to how to best communicate um, some of these potential issues to all parties, right? Because now I am sitting in kind of the hub and there's all these spokes um, that all need to be aligned to move forward in as best of a harmonious way as possible. So we'll get into your background with science communication in particular in a little bit, but I would imagine that's extremely useful for your job now. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I, I always sit, think about like, you know, um, that meme where you say how people think or how, how I tell people what happens and how, what actually happened. Um, what actually happened of how I got here was very chaotic. And, you know, it, but when I tell people how things happen and how I got to my career, there's this, this common thread of science communication that really kind of pulls me through. But I do remember, you know, throughout my career, career in, in quotes, since I've only been out of school for like two or three years, um, that it was kind of a mad dash to see, you know, what I like and understand even what the field is. But yeah, well, we can get to, get to that later. <laughs> so backing up um, and now taking a look at your personal story, um, could you just take us through the journey of what initially sparked your interest in science and then what later sparked your interest in science policy and science communication? Yeah, sure. So I like to think that my my scientific journey started in high school when I did um, a science summer camp, uh, just like the nerdiest thing of all. Uh, it was amazing. It spent a month at uh, University of California, Irvine, um, learning about biology, brain, and genomics. Um, while I didn't understand everything, you know, like I remember having a professor teach us about um, DNA, and she showed us pictures of plasmids, which in the diagrams are these, these circles, right? And they have little, um, they become diagrammed out to each parts of the circles, like what these genes within these circles meant. I had no idea what she was talking about because we learned that DNA is a double helix. So why is it in a circle in this picture? But <laughs> in that month, I really enjoyed learning about the brain and more specifically what we didn't know about the brain. So I, I, I thought to have been asking really simple questions, but it turned out that people still didn't know the answer. And that really drew me in. There was just so much to understand and so much to know. And um, that made me uh, major in neuroscience when I went to undergrad at UCLA um, and then led me to do a PhD um, afterwards because of some great experience I had in the lab while I was an undergrad. Um, and throughout my U UCLA experience, I was really involved in the Vietnamese Student Union. And that also came out of like weird serendipity where uh, a roommate of mine told me that I, she essentially coaxed me to go um, to the first meeting and I went and she actually didn't go. So um, I ended up um, getting really involved and learning about, you know, community building and the uh, importance of having shared experiences and, and communication, because I then be, like, became um, an advocacy coordinator for them. And then I became president and learned, you know, these quote unquote soft skills of organizing and um, just bringing people together. Um, and, and when I went to grad school, I, I saw that that was still something I wanted to do. Like I looked for a community um, when I was here, when I was uh, at Hopkins, the whole idea of science communication wasn't apparent to me until I had this conversation with my then partner, now husband. Um, we had been dating for about two years. And just one random night, he turned to me and he says, he asked me, what is your PhD project in again? And so he is, you know, a uh, an artist. Um, 
that's political science. So, you know, science is not something that we always talk about. And so I was super excited. Um, and I turned to him immediately and, you know, described the brain, you know, the neuron as like, um, your hand or the neuron is like a tree. The neuron, no, it's like a, it's like a, a classroom, but with a bunch of rooms in it. And at the end of that, like our conversation, we were both really mad at each other. Um, you know, for me, I was like, why can't you understand my simple analogies? And for him, he's like, what are you talking about? Like, this makes no sense. So really it was that one experience that really catalyzed my desire to make my own communication abilities better you know like if i had these these problems simply explaining my project which i had spent three years in already if i couldn't explain it to my loved ones how will people who control budgets who control policies care about what we do in science like that onus needs to be on us and if we don't do it well um that's essentially our fault in a way um so then um with that in mind uh i and a few of my classmates with shared interests um, started Project Bridge, uh, which is uh, still a student group at Johns Hopkins, which actually now is um, in two more universities uh, at the University of Colorado and also now at Indiana. And we might be starting one in Norway. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> so so we, we built this, this group to foster uh, public uh, interest in science and really improve scientists' abilities to communicate by giving us more platforms to um, better communicate our science and to, you know, mess up and again to iterate because I think that's a, that's a really important point of science that right? we fail but then hopefully we learn from that failing and then improve. Um, so that's really where my journey started. For anyone at Hopkins, I can attest Project Bridge is an amazing organization that's still incredible. And <laughs> there are so many great opportunities to get involved. So if you're here, or I believe you can go to the website if you wanted to start your own chapter, right? Yep, yep. yep. Yeah, so definitely check it out. But yeah, I think that's a really um, prescient observation that you make where you had some frustrations just explaining um, your own research to uh, friends and family, which I think is probably something that a lot of um, PhDs, a lot of scientists have, um, you know, in interacting with their own families and telling them what they do. But even beyond that, you had this sort of broader realization that um, I got to get better at this because this is important. This is something that's going to shape the decisions of key decision makers in terms of policy and other things. Um Earlier at UCLA, you had an interest in communication, but what really directed you towards science policy and advocacy in in the political arena? Yeah, um, I had always been interested in politics since UCLA. Um, that really kind of were my formative years where, you know, UCLA was a, such a good microcosm for the political um, world where, you know, for student elections, at UCLA, we ran slates of people. Like we teamed up with other organizations um, where we vetted our own candidates and ran, you know, months long campaigns um, that really showed me the importance again of community building, of um, getting endorsements and, you know, really the power of communication um, and, the, and the power that comes with um, being able to win and getting, um, 
getting some of that. But, uh, you know, it was really apparent as I was doing my grad grad school work and learning more about science. You know, you also learn about kind of the um, the drawbacks of science, but the, in the same time, um, what was happening with the world, you saw that there was a, a steady erosion of trust in science, right? Like there, the, the anti-vax movement seemed to kind of um, bubble up. Um, you know, people talked about climate change in a way that really kind of ignored that science. And I, I thought that was really um, something that we needed to address. So um, when I was about to graduate, so I, I had my like six months meeting. So, you know, in grad school, you you have a permission to write meeting. That means you had six more months until you kind of finished up. And that, you know, again, with the, the meme of what really happened and what I, I say happened, I applied for probably 50 jobs um, during that six months um, of anything in science outreach, science communication realm. Because again, like you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know it was out there. Um, and it wasn't until I um, I connected with an organization called Research America, which actually came to Johns Hopkins through a career um, seminar. So I, I owe really my um, jumping off point to the um, the PDCO the um, and Pat Phelps for, for all of that work. So um, the Professional Development and Careers Office. So after Research America came and talked to me, talked to the group, I guess, about, you know, the, the importance of science communication, the importance of being a, um, of science policy. Uh, and at the end of that meeting, I was really interested in learning more. And, and I, I, that was one of the first times where I really saw a career path in science communication that was beyond, that didn't seem so um, dependent on grants, right? Because, you know, if you go to science outreach, there are several large grants that you can get, but it, it was really hard to, to kind of figure out the pathway um, to a full-fledged career. So um, in sort of like a, like a dipping my toes into the water, um, I requested or asked the folks at Research America whether or not we could team up to do an event um, because, you know, we had um, a lot of people who I connected with through Project Bridge. So we, we worked together to create Eat and Advocate. So it was just a one day, one morning event where we um, brought bought breakfast for people who came and those who did come um, wrote letters to their congressional representatives um, about, you know, to urge them to support science. So that really kind of kicked off the wheels in my head. Um, and allowed me kind of that, to start building the connections with people at Research America, who luckily had a fellowship in science policy that I applied to. Um, and that's what I did after um, my PhD. So, you know, this is one thing I always tell people who are looking for um, different career paths outside of academia, especially in science communication. The most important thing really is to show that you've tried it and you've you've done it before and it, it doesn't need to be in a formal way I, I actually think you know if i if i were looking for somebody if i were trying to hire somebody in in, in this field or you know, in science policy i would rather see somebody who was like a self-starter um who you know maybe created a blog on their own just wrote about science or 
um, put together um, an event and hosted an event because that shows leadership, that shows initiative. Um, you probably have pretty good science writing skills because that's very key to science communication, whether again, it's an outreach policy, philanthropy, consulting, all of that. I think it's all kind of in one umbrella. Um, so whether, you know, I the last six months for me for, uh, in grad school, the, the six month permission to write portion of my life was insane because I applied for all these jobs. I finished up my work um, but I also still continue to work on um, kind of like uh, hands-on events, hands-on events um, where I continue to build my own um, toolbox so that when I went out for the job market, I was at least, I at least kind of had an idea of whether I would, I would like it. I was going to ask, what are some of the challenges you really encountered as a policy fellow? like in terms of advocating and convincing people that, you know, what you're doing is based on science. It has nothing to do with political bias. It's science. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest things that struck me when I became the science, when I was a science fellow is how little you actually need to do. Like you, like you imagine yourself, like, you know, walking up the steps to the Capitol, banging on the doors, taking names, having like these like, really hard meetings, you know, like, you know, that was a very small portion of it. A lot of the work really was building advocacy materials, right? Like, you know, you don't come to the meeting that only lasts for usually five to 10 minutes with congressional staffers without preparing tons of work beforehand, right? And a lot of that work was on us as fellows. Like we would develop one pagers um, of the importance of science for whatever region or interest that um, our, 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 our audience was, right? So if we were meeting with some uh, a congressional aide from Iowa or something, we would have ready um, why science is important to their district, to their state, to their constituents, because really that's what they care about, right? So the, the, what I learned really quickly was, you know, how much we needed to understand our audience cater to their priorities because they all have um, people they report to. So if we are able to craft our message to say that the people that they report to and the people who vote for them or vote against them care about science, it's something that they'll they'll have their ears perked up more, right? Like, so if somebody say cares about um, the military, we would then think about you know, why mosquito research is important because it will protect our troops who are in areas that have malaria. So, you know, like you, luckily science is important everywhere. So it's a matter of drawing out these stories and, and crafting them in a way that really makes sense. Um, and then another part I learned was that there are so many people um, who do this work of science advocacy. Like, and we all do it together in coalitions. Like, you know, the more people you have, the more voices you have that agree on a certain message, um, the more impactful it is. Um, so a lot of the work, you know, all of the federal institutes have coalitions that support them. So there's a coalition that supports the NIH, there's a coalition that supports NSF, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, et cetera. So, um, Groups then like Research America and a 
um, scientific societies like the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, which I, I transitioned to after Research America, would sit on these coalitions and we would represent, you know, our constituency of, you know, five to 10 to 20,000 scientists within a group of 50 other institutions that then just make our coalition stronger. So none of this work we can do alone. Um, and so that's really important to to thinking about advocacy is, is how do you kind of create and, and, and gather more people together to make your voices heard and make it stronger. I think one of the things that you just brought up is, I think is really key is that you need to know your audience. So why not go in with a one size fits all slide deck? Why is this important? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's clear, like, you know, I wouldn't give the same scientific presentation to my mom than I would to my thesis advisor, right? Like, I think um, at the end of the day, I think when you have some type of, any type of presentation, really, the best thing to do is step back and think about what the goals are you're trying to accomplish, right? So if I'm trying to accomplish, if I'm trying to convince my mom, um to wear a mask for for COVID outside, and you know, full disclosure, she does wear a mask. <laughs> um, you know, and I know that say she hates PowerPoint presentations. Like, why would I do a PowerPoint? Um, but if I were talking to a scientist who their livelihood seems to be dependent on PowerPoint presentations, um, that would be the best. Like, I would throw in all the data, right? Like, I would show trends if I were talking to a scientist, but if I were talking to my mom and trying to convince her to wear a mask, um, I would maybe tell a story about, you know, maybe her, our family friend who didn't wear a mask and um, got got sick. That would, because she cares more about that, right? So you, you really need to understand people's motivations um, and how people think. So, you know, I think that's that's really important. So now moving to the Milken Institute, as you mentioned before, actually a lot of what you do is information gathering, uh, market analyses, and then informing external organizations like philanthropies and other institutions on what initiatives to prioritize and maybe how to best go about making their dollars go the farthest. So what is the environment like and what kind of tasks do you do um, at the Center for Strategic Film? Is it like an academic environment, kind of like a scholarly environment? Um, it's, it's like a very interesting hybrid. So I just want to say that um, I had never thought in a million years that I would be in the position where I, I am now. Um, again, it's mostly because you don't know what you don't know, right? Like when I was finishing grad school, I had no idea that a position like philanthropic consulting was really a thing. Um, and I would just advise um, people who are listening, who are, you know, thinking about the next steps in their grad school, grad school career is that whatever is your next step is not your final step. <laughs> I feel like I've already had three different careers um, and I've only been out of, out of school for what, like three years. So um, that just has um, really lowers the level of of kind of fear almost and like trying to figure out what's next right because your next job will never will not be the only job you have and won't be your last and you know keeping an open door and open mind to other opportunities that you never have thought you would do is really important because it does open you up to um 
opportunities like the ones I have now. So where I am now at the Milken Institute Center for Strategic Philanthropy, we're, um, is about a 20 person team and there's about seven PhDs on the team. And we work mainly with partners and clients. Um, so it's, it's, it's more like a, um, I think one of these like traditional consulting firms, um, you know, we use a lot of our scientific expertise to inform the work that we do. Um, so it's very collaborative. You know, we have experts who work in education, who work in um, environment, and my team focuses mainly on biomedical um, uh, portfolio. So again, I work on um, uh, portfolio looking at bipolar disorder. So um, we have a pretty systematic uh, method of, of creating the opportunities this opportunity map and sharing it with with our partners. Um, a lot of it comes with again speaking with the experts because you know even though we um, have terminal degrees, uh, we will never be the expert in the specific object and in the specific subject. And our our mission really is the again like um, the person who brings everybody together and we identify who are the key players in the field um but we also are able to play a really interesting role which i've always um wanted to do more of when i was at uh in kind of quote unquote like traditional advocacy where you really the, the ability to create and build your own um grant program uh and kind of building in uh, key things that you think are important, like um, equity and diversity, like uh, bringing in early career scientists, um, like innovation, um, high risk, high reward, things like that, you can really kind of imbue in the fabric of your grant programs from the ground up. And that's so exciting. I think that work is is a great model for things that take longer to change, like federal government like the nih controls what well, has i think their budget now is in the 30 40 billion dollars that ship is huge right like changing anything there takes a lot longer than building a grant program that's about five to ten million but you can use that as the first step in a in a very long series of changes that that you know if you can show that your program is effective others might be willing to adopt so it's like a really cool combination of um, acad academia and kind of philanthropy, but also kind of this grants management program that that all is in, in one. I think it's, I'm really glad you touched on that too, about the ability to like build an equitable grant program, right? Because I think for early career scientists, especially if they're working in traditional academia, getting that first grant is the biggest hurdle. And so if they can have other sources of funding during that time, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know to look for or know to go to. Yeah, and it is especially in the COVID era, right? Like we, everything's kind of up in, up in the air. We really don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, one role for philanthropy is perhaps to provide more stability, but there's also a role to be more innovative. Um, 
and it really depends on who, what type of philanthropist we're working with and what they're willing to do. But it's really exciting because philanthropy is nimble, right? And, and, um, and quick in, in the way where it can fit into different um, gaps really quickly. And quite quickly, again, I say in air quotes because it still is like a few years, um, you know, five, two to five years at, at, at the earliest. But that's faster than the NIH. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's an interesting, a really interesting comp comparison that you make of the role of philanthropy uh, relative to Congress and in, in that, you know, the U.S. federal government is steering a massive ship. There are many layers and layers of committees and uh, decision makers that uh, any decision needs to go through. Um, in order to eventually come to fruition and venture philanthropy with being a lot more nimble um, can go in and help kickstart certain um, initiatives uh, really right. early. Um, and really don't get me wrong, like uh, the federal government support is vital to longevity and sustainability of um, any of the work that we do, right? Because philanthropy can't... It, Although because it's nimble, it can also end really quickly. Um, so we that's why we must bring in the federal government because they can provide that long-term support. Right. So what are some of the challenges in the bio? Because you said that you're specifically focused on bipolar disorder as a therapeutic area. Uh, what are some of the challenges that are in that sector? Yeah, bipolar disorder is such an interesting disorder. Um, the disorder is highly complicated, highly complex, and also highly heterogeneous. Uh, even though there's there's sub um, diagnoses, there's bipolar one and two, and the subgroups seem to be more nuanced than that. So that really prevents the ability to diagnose, the ability to treat, the ability to make treatments, the ability to detect progression and risk. Um, it's a 10-year period between first symptom onset until actual correct diagnosis. So that delay really um, hinders uh, the ability for the field to um, progress. And the similarities it has to major depressive disorder or schizophrenia, yeah, there, there, there's a host of challenges um, where there are no biomarkers, um, where the genetics is really confusing, um, there's comorbidities. There's just, you know, people, um, there's very high suicidality. Um, so it, it's it's very complex. Yeah, I actually drawing on your neuroscience background in particular for this, it's not just bipolar disorder, but when you couple all of the challenges in terms of, especially the genetics, right? Like with bipolar disorder, almost being more similar to schizophrenia and some genetic overlap. Yeah. Um, but especially, you know, with bipolar disorder, how do you get around the animal model problem? Because like for a lot of things like, you know, let's take cancer. Um, and if you take like a xenograft model where you're just taking tumor cells, injecting them under the skin and letting a tumor grow and harvesting that, and there's your sample and it can behave in a way that's reliable. Um, that might not be true for all xenograft models. I do not work with that. I may have gotten that wrong. but. Um, yeah, so how do you deal with that, I guess, for bipolar disorder and other mental health conditions in general when yeah. the animal models just aren't there? It's, it's really tricky. Um, that That's one of the gaps that we've identified, obviously. Um, but 
you know, yeah, with mental disorders, the best model is the human model. Um, that that in itself also um, brings up challenges. There has been some work to develop a model, uh, an animal model that displays both mania and depression. That's been the challenge. You can have models of mania, you have models of depression, but to have both in one animal has been challenging. Um, so, but there have been some advances, I think, based on um, these other facets that have been used to characterize bipolar. Um, another thing, you know, that in, in the kind of category of human um, humans as the best animal model, um, the advent of of um, social media apps or just apps in general, like cell phone apps, um, have um, kind of created this field uh, called actigraphy, you know, like using, uh, you know, like Fitbits or things like that to measure different bio um, readouts, such as um, walking gait, uh, speed, speech um, patterns, all that. And, and some of that actually have been shown to be able to predict symptom onset um, or mood onset. Um, so there have been some interesting advances using um, technology. So there, there, it's not all dire um, and there's some exciting um, work. And you know, I think this is gonna be much more interesting and more prevalent. Yeah, and then you had mentioned too, you work with um, people with lived experiences for certain conditions, just in general, as part of your institute. What, at what stage in the process do they typically come in? It, it, it highly varies on, on the project and on um, the partners that we work with. So with bipolar, uh, we've worked with the Depression and Bipolar uh, Support Alliance to uh, develop a very robust and comprehensive survey on um, what the priorities are of individuals with lived experience. So, you know, what do they actually care about versus what scientists care about, right? And there's been some interesting discrepancies where, you know, scientists tend to care about treating the symptoms, like tracking um, mood onset, whereas individuals with lived experience um, characterize it more as wanting to be in more control. Right, it could that seems like a subtle nuance, but it's like really important to know that, like, it's not about symptom abatement. It's about being able to understand where they are in their mood cycle, how they can be best treated, um, as they need to feel in control of their situation. So uh, we also work with um, scientists who are also individuals with lived experience as well. And we engage them pretty much throughout um, the, the process. Are there any recommended experiences or internships that you would suggest uh, for people that are looking to get into either the think tank or venture philanthropy space? That's funny because I actually don't really know um, of those experiences, like my, the way I got there was so kind of weird and convoluted. But in, in terms of like science policy and advocacy, um, I'm gonna give a shout out to the Genetic Society of America that have a extremely well done um, database of science policy, internships, fellowships, and, ex and experiences that are up, um, up to date um, and very thorough. So if you just Google 
Student Society of America fellowships and maybe include database if you want to, but that should pop up. And um, it's it's been a really great resource for, for me and especially for those who are interested in, in finding more experiences like this. But again, I recommend, you know, formal experiences are, are just as important as informal ones. Thank you, Daniel, for sharing your perspectives with us today on science policy, science communication, and on think tanks and venture philanthropy. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chickermain. And I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.